Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, a city mourning the loss of Creole chef and icon Leah Chase, and Michael Carnahan and Brad Hicks from Little Rock, Arkansas, a city that is experiencing record levels in the Arkansas River that have sparked flooding in central Arkansas. Thank you for joining us for Episode 13, Belmont Stakes Special. Some of you may be wondering why we're talking about horse racing instead of a criminal case. I've loved horses and ponies all my life and have been a fan of horse racing since Secretariat won the Triple Crown in 1973. I was watching the match race at Belmont with my great-grandfather in 1975, which is a race that ruffian broke down and i cried when the vets weren't able to save her like our real lives horse racing has highs and lows but keeps moving forward since 2014 between april and june horse racing is almost an obsession for me i usually don't get up before 10 o'clock on the weekends but last saturday i was up before nine so that i could watch the races in england which included the epsom derby Tonight, Talk Radio 49 co-host Brad Hicks is going to join us to talk about the 151st Belmont Stakes, called the One and a Half Mile Test of Champions, which will be run this Saturday, June 8, 2019. Brad worked with his uncle, Charles Jeep Thomas, who trained thoroughbreds at Oak Lawn in Arkansas. We'll talk about the history of the track at Elmont, New York, the evolution of the Triple Crown races, and learn about the types of horse racing held at tracks across the United States. We'll also discuss the field of horses, their trainers and jockeys, post positions, and we'll make some predictions about the race. All right. I thought I would explain to everyone why we're doing this, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. A little bit of a different uh, episode this week for clear and convincing, but, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly going to be some stuff. I mean, I've never really watched horse racing, so it's definitely going to be some informative stuff because, you know, I have no uh, knowledge of this type of stuff, so it'll definitely be interesting. But we're going to throw in a little bit of true crime in here. Yes, we are. Very uh, I guess. 
<laughs> last week we talked about a, an, a lethal injection challenge made by a gentleman in Alabama named Christopher Price. Uh, Mr. Price wanted the state of Alabama to execute him using nitrous oxide rather than uh, Alabama's three-drug cocktail that they uh, normally use. Um, Mr. Price's execution date in April had been stayed so that he could challenge Alabama's method. He filed additional claims leading up to his May execution date, which were denied on May 13th by the U.S. Supreme Court. And so his execution went forward last, I think it was Wednesday night in uh-huh. Alabama. Um, it was it, it went off without any apparent problems as far as his level of consciousness or any claims that he suffered. Well, that's certainly and just. Go ahead. Just prior to being executed, he did apologize to his victim's family, Absolutely. which is a that seems like pretty much a uh, that seems like pretty much a standard thing for a guy for uh, a lot of death row inmates is once they're you know finally strapped in and stuff they will apologize. I don't know whether they're they think maybe that's going to get them out of it or what have you, but. Uh, I have noticed Well, no. Actually, many, many of them don't. Um, Philip Workman, he claimed to be innocent even as the state of Tennessee was executing him. Uh, I believe Sedley Alley, who we're going to talk about, uh, he was executed in 2006 in Tennessee. He also claimed that he was innocent. And... um, his case made it back in the news. And then a, a guy in Texas by the name of Stephen Wood or Woods, uh, he claimed that he was innocent from the gurney and, and said Texas was getting ready to commit murder. <clears throat> so right. well, I mean, some I mean, do, you know, I think some feel confession is good for the soul and they feel that they, you know, have to make it right. Uh, for their immortal soul, but others will carry the fiction of truth of innocence right down to the wire. I, Roger Keith Coleman, who we're also going to talk about, he also said the state of Virginia was going to murder him, that he was innocent and, and it would be proven one day. And as we'll see when we when we profile his case, that's not how it worked out. Right, right. So um, one thing I noticed here, and I can't get the uh, gosh darn site to pull up, but apparently his last meal was like a large amount of pudding. I don't know if you saw that or if you can uh, Google the story real quick, but uh, apparently that was his last meal was all, just a whole bunch of pudding. Okay. Yeah. Um, Some of these. No, I, I don't even want to think about that because that will lead me down. I have a personal theory about the last uh-huh. meals and the last requests 
and I, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't want to go into that here or now. <laughs> right. Well, no, I just look at some of them, and I'm if like, you think about it, you might. <laughs> if you know anything about death, you might figure it out if you think about it. I mean, touche, but uh, what is it? Uh, what's his? John Wayne Gacy, I think, was the one that got like two mint chocolate chip, two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream, and uh-huh. some of these. I forget. I know I've seen Bundy's before, but I forget what his was. His was one of the yeah. odd ones too. I think. Yeah, but they, I mean, some of them really do. Yeah, some of them, though, you see that are just like normal. Some of them are like, hey, get, go get me two Whoppers with cheese and a large fry and well, a strawberry milkshake. And- the, the state of Texas had an issue with somebody with their last meal request. And so right, the eat. state of Texas was like, fine, nobody's getting a last request. You eat what everybody else is going to eat. Yeah, the guy didn't – he ordered some exorbitant meal, and I forget what it was mm-hmm. or who yeah. it was even. But uh, he ordered yeah. some exorbitant crazy meal, and, like, they got it for him, and then he just, like, threw it all in the trash. So the warden yeah. was like, okay, I got you. Well, that'll never happen again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so – As far as – as far as price goes, uh, was there ever really any hope that he would not get the three-drug protocol? Uh, I don't think Alabama is set up. I think a couple of states are looking at using nitrous oxide. Um, mm-hmm. and But Alabama is not set up to do that at this time. Right. Now, that's like the most so, expensive form of execution, isn't it? I don't, I, you know, I honestly don't know. Um, I know, like, when I'm at the, when I go to the dentist and they use the nitrous oxide, they have to be very careful because right. if you get too much nitrogen and not enough oxygen, your brain, it does severe brain damage. Right. Right. So, um, you know, and that's I think that's what they're looking and they're looking at. But I don't think anybody's implemented. I mean, I can't imagine that nitrous oxide would cost that much. Um yeah, but you know, the I, I the anti death penalty then will go after the people who manufacture the tanks and manufacture the gas and it'll be a whole nother thing. You know, where they're trying to get the the means of execution to make them all totally unavailable, and they think that that's uh-huh. going to end um, the death penalty. Right, right. So I don't know if maybe because this was actually a uh, this was actually a UK, so maybe they call it pudding over there in the UK. But what he actually got was four pints of turtle pie ice cream, whatever that. Okay, is. I've never heard. Of it. I think in England, if I recall correctly from my experience with English people and Harry Potter, 
pudding is generally how they refer to dessert, but it's not necessarily oh. uh, like jello pudding or the British version of pudding, which is actually a kind of disgusting cake like substance that is boiled <laughs> right for hours well uh it's not jello pudding did you actually see his uh i know he apologized but did you actually see what his last words were no i didn't i i i saw a news story um wednesday evening or thursday evening okay. whenever it was and yeah, I, I didn't look any something. further than that. Okay. Yeah, it said that uh, apparently what he had said was a man's work. A man is a man is much more than his worst mistake was what he had said. Oh yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that. He, uh, That, that yeah, was, he, uh, last you, you know, he, I, I give him some credit for at least apologizing to the victim's family, but, you know, I still trying to, to me, that statement kind of lessens or tries to lessen his culpability For the for the crime for which he was convicted, and right. I, a lot of times I think in in the advocacy and the um, the arguments about the prisoners' rights and life, uh, mm-hmm. people forget what happened to the victim. I mean, William Lynn was a pastor. He was an older oh. gentleman. And he was attacked by Price with a sword and mm. knife and and right. killed. I mean, he died on the way to the hospital. Right, right. And I mean, absolutely no, uh, uh, no uh, excuse for what he did. But yeah, I guess those were his uh, reported last words were uh, that he was going – that you know, obviously he shouldn't. I guess he feels like he shouldn't be judged for what he considers his worst mistake. Right. Uh, and, and you know, I just I, I I have to say, this crime occurred on December twenty second, nineteen ninety one. In addition to murdering the pastor, his wife Bessie, who was assembling toys with him just prior to his murder, um, the power cut was cut off. He went outside to check the power box. She heard a noise, looked outside, and saw a man dressed in black holding a sword above her husband. She ran outside, found her husband severely wounded, saw two men as she was trying to start a van to flee. I, I guess this was out in kind of a rural area. Uh, the men beat uh-huh. her and robbed her of money and her wedding rings, despite her pleas to be allowed to keep her jewelry. Okay. The pastor was cut okay. or stabbed more than 30 times. Oh, my God. Wow. 
And uh, when he was arrested several days later in Chattanooga, Tennessee, he admitted participating in the robbery, but blamed the killing on his accomplice. Oh, of course. Like you said, less than that culpability. So, you know, like, yeah, he's he's making it look like I wasn't. And, you know, yeah, sometimes you're not, but that just goes beyond that you could do that to one person ever in your life. There's something wrong, and to me, they're almost unredeemable. I mean, yeah, I agree with that statement. I mean, it is something that, Um, you know, you definitely, I I mean, you, you can move past. But, you know, it's something that, you know, obviously you will be judged by for the rest of your life for sure. Correct. And, I, you know, I was raised, if I, you know, went berserk and killed somebody and stabbed them 30 times and then tried to flee and uh, prevent police from figuring out it was me, my mom would have been like, I'll throw the switch. <laughs> right. So, right. you know, because there were always consequences for your actions, and you suffered the consequences. Uh, and of course, that's one of the reasons why, even though prison might be nice for me because there'd be no bills and I'd have food and a roof over my head. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't. I don't do it. I don't steal. I don't hurt people. I don't take advantage of people. I don't take anything that doesn't belong to me because I don't want to end up in prison. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, in fact, I, I didn't talk about this. Um, I was picked for a jury panel or a jury right. pool, but I wasn't chosen to be on the jury. Okay. I. Somebody didn't want me. I don't know whether it was the prosecution or the defense. I may have, I may have volunteered information that I didn't really need to volunteer. But as ah. I was sitting there and they're asking the questions, I'm thinking, you know, if this guy gets convicted and he's in prison for a long time, you know, some defense investigator might find this out about me and then claim I lied. Right. So... Um, I might I might get an email to the prosecutor, and just I'm just curious, was it telling, him, was it volunteering information? <laughs> and let me explain why I was volunteering information, because um, I you know I didn't want a defense investigator finding out this little bit of information that was. Not specifically asked of me, mm-hmm. but one could argue that what was being asked should have led to disclosure of that information. And certainly a defense attorney well, in post-conviction would definitely say that juror and, and you know imply that I was lying to get on the jury. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, or hiding information to get on the jury. Absolutely. So, well, uh, 
we do finally have Brad on the line, but he said he's going to jump oh, in perfect. in just a moment. So let's go okay. ahead. And, let's go ahead and get a little bit of an introduction to the uh, to what we're talking about tonight. All right. Well, Belmont Stakes, which is the oldest of the three Triple Crown series races is scheduled for this Saturday, June 8th at Belmont Park, which is located in Elmont, New York, just east of the New uh, New York City limits. Um, the park itself, Belmont Park opened on May 4th, 1905. It was built by August Belmont Sr., who was very big in philanthropy and horse racing and and other things in New York area uh, during the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, it is now run by the New York Racing Association, along with the other two famous tracks, Aqueduct and Saratoga. Um, the uh, Belmont Park is open April through mid-July for the spring meet. And then they open again mid-September through late October for the fall meet. Um, The track is referred to by the nickname of the Big Sandy because of its prominent overall dimensions, which are one and a half miles or 2.4 kilometers, and the deep sandy surface of the track on the dirt track. Um, it's also known as the championship track because almost every major champion in racing history since the early 20th century has competed on the Belmont race course, including all of the Triple Crown winners. Okay. Okay. So it's definitely one and, of those, uh, uh, it's definitely one of those, you know, very, it's got a lot of prestige to it. It's almost like mm-hmm. a Rose Bowl. Yeah. Here, and so to speak. as, as I alluded as I alluded in my intro, it's seen the highs and lows. It's seen 1973 record-setting uh, uh, Triple Crown Belmont Stakes win by Secretariat, not only by time, but by distance, because he was like 31 and a half lengths ahead of the rest of the horses. But it's also seen the lows. In 2004, the largest crowd was there to witness Smarty Jones upset by Birdstone in Smarty Jones' Triple Crown bid. Right, right. And well, it keeps some- moving forward. We do have Mr. Brad on the line here, so I'll go ahead and oh, let great. him pop in. Oh, great. introduce himself and everything, but uh, he's ready to go ahead and talk about this stuff with us. And it's certainly going to be, like I said, a learning experience for me. Well, hello, Lisa and, and Michael. It's uh, great to be here on a Tuesday afternoon. Like I've usually opened up, our thoughts and prayers go out <laughs> to all those affected along the Arkansas River. Uh, yes. You know, area. I know that where we're positioned in in Small Mail, which is just a little bit off the river, but far enough away to where we're not adversely affected by it. You know, we're we're doing okay, but. Uh, Definitely, uh, like the River Valley area up towards Oklahoma, and uh, I know that those in Pine Bluff and that area are feeling it as, as well as Little Rock. I mean, if you're close to the riverbank, it's 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 no fun 
Uh, fortunately, though, a little bit of bright news. The the river has crested and actually is actually falling, but with projected rain in the forecast of seven to eight inches in the River Valley area and up in towards Oklahoma, I don't think we're out of the clear just yet, but we're we're holding hope. Yeah, I I being from Louisiana, I can uh I can relate. Because we've but had our share of I was gonna say you, you talked about the history of the of the Belmont. Obviously eighteen sixty seven was the very first uh Belmont stake. Uh I believe this is the hundred and fifty first running of the Belmont and what is it, the hundred and forty fifth in the Kentucky and the hundred and forty seventh Freakness maybe I'm a little bit off. I think you're pretty close. But, yeah. I think it's it's interesting too. I think it's Belmont. Yeah, it's Belmont, Kentucky Derby, and then Preakness. I guess so. Yeah. So the, the they as ran the Kentucky as, Derby, and then the the earliest, the baby of all of them, I guess, would be the Preakness at 144. Correct. Correct. Um, so yeah, we're talking about when the when Belmont opened. Do you know number one, two things? That for 15 years, they ran clockwise at Belmont when they first opened. And Correct. They changed, they changed it to, uh, well, I'll let you get into that. I'm sure you have that. But the other interesting thing is that when you <laughs> go onto the grounds of Belmont, the, the gate, the original gate that people used to enter that track from is still standing. Uh, inside, I forget exactly where it's located, but it is actually still there, and you can look at it. It's pretty neat. Yeah, um, the uh, initially the track was they ran in the English fashion. Apparently, in England, they run cl- they run clockwise rather than counterclockwise, or counterclockwise All rather than clockwise. Um, so. Yeah, they initially ran in the English fashion, which was clockwise. Funny story, um, real quick. So, so we're at we're and simulcasting. That was... <laughs> real quick, we're, we're simulcasting, right? And, okay. and we've been there. We've been there eight or nine hours. Um, <laughs> and I had sampled pretty much every draft that was imaginable. Um, and so I go to, you know, I bet on this race, had never seen this before. And I look up, and I thought something was wrong because they were running back. And I had to be explained. Of course, I was inebriated at the time. So uh-huh. I, I literally thought something bad had happened or, or I had got to the point of spinning. So, you know, it was one of those situations. But it was a different look for me. I'm always used to traditional horse racing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. A, it's a fascinating. You know, I was watching Epsom, uh, the Epsom Derby, and all the other races leading up to the Epsom Derby, and um, I was really happy for Aiden O'Brien. His, uh, I think, all of his horses placed, <laughs> finished in the money, um, but uh, and he's such a he's such a nice, humble man. Because he was thanking the interviewers for being there. 
you know, to watch his horse win the race. But uh, anyway, um, it is interesting, and, and I was looking, the Stone Pillars used to be on the Hempstead Turnpike, and they actually came from the South Carolina Jockey Club in Charleston, which had operated from 1792 to 1882. Those pillars are now at the clubhouse entrance and entrance at Belmont Park. Right. I mean, there's so much history with the Belmont. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. uh, when the the uh, and I'm sure you've got your notes on it as well. I was actually watching a documentary earlier today on, on Belmont Park. I wasn't that familiar with it. Um, about like when, when, uh, forget his name now, when, when the, the other, the Belmont gentleman passed away and Widener took over and he kind of innovated things and created what they called the Widener dirt track, which was a seven furlong, Straight stretch across the infield on dirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know you had, you had a lot of innovation come out of Belmont Park. Yes. Um, now that was actually a, uh, eventually abandoned. Um, right. In uh, I think it was the fifties, uh, but that is actually it's I think it's still used as a starting point. Because when you look at the overhead and, like, the match race between Ruffian and Foolish Pleasure, I think they started there because they wanted the race to end in front of the clubhouse and the grandstand. That was why they ran clockwise. And it's another one of those tracks, too. A lot of people don't realize it. Like, uh, I don't know about Louisiana Downs and those. Oakland doesn't have it either, but uh, Belmont also has the inside track, which is a turf course. Correct. That yeah, that was an, a later addition as well. And there was a there was another steeplechase track, but steeplechase racing didn't stay in fashion in the U.S. But it's still it's still pretty common in uh, in England. And I was about to say it on on Epsom Derby Day, they have a race that makes the Kentucky Derby look like a walk in the park. And I was I was watching it, going, "Oh my god!" But you have to see it to believe it. Brad? Right. Yeah, I'm Michael. here. My phone has got it. terrible. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Oh. I, was, I, I mean, okay, let's be honest. I was yelling at two dogs that are doing their own Kentucky Derby here in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's a, a straightaway shoot on the back stretch. I think that's what you were talking about. And it per- permits races on the dirt up to one and an eighth miles to run a one-turn race. So I think that was what they were so doing I, for. 
just so I can make sure I'm understanding, they used to run ca- clockwise. Now they're running counterclockwise. Yes. Okay. I, that, I'm not good at. Does that change anything as far as a horse goes, like how it's running or anything, or is that just you know something different that they used to do? Uh, well, I think it was the 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 start would be, and it would depend on the distance in the race. If you're running seven furlongs or six furlongs or shorter races like a one-turn race, they would start on the back stretch, and then they would run clockwise and finish by the grandstand because that was the money. Mm-hmm. And now so I think the what they do is they actually, they actually start the races in front of the grandstand, and they go around counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. And they still finish in front of the grandstand. So I think it just made a difference as to where the race started. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the chute may have been used as a starting point so that they could come clockwise instead of counterclockwise. Okay. I'm not good okay. spatially, so I'm just I'm just winging it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, trying to answer to the best of your abilities, huh? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> some other interesting features of Belmont, and it's, it's one of the reasons it's a place that's on my bucket list for one of these days. Um, there is a statue of Secretariat in the paddock or in the walking ring. It's a beautiful statue. Um, Ruffian is buried in the infield near the flags. There's Woody's Corner, Corner. which is a display in the first floor clubhouse lobby, which commemorates the five consecutive Belmont Stakes winners who were trained by Woody Stevens from 82 to 86. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, it's okay. also seen a lot of celebrities mm-hmm. and has appeared in uh, Mighty Aphrodite, which is Woody Allen movie, Melinda and Melinda in 2004. And a 1990s remake of the film Gloria was uh, shot, the paddock scene was shot at Beaumont Park. As were Bill Murray's 2014 St. Vincent. Okay, okay. So, I mean, basically, like I said, you know, and it seems like, obviously, I guess I kind of spoke a little bit too soon. I, I, I will say this, you know, I guess the Kentucky Derby would be more like the Rose Bowl, but, uh, you know, this one, you know, sounds like it's, you know, steeped in pretty big tradition as far as that goes. And yeah. it's like you're walking almost like a museum type of situation. Yeah. It is. It's a it's a track that's been around a long time. I mean it's 
114 years now. Oh, okay. and just to clarify, on Kentucky Derby, uh, Kentucky Derby was first run in 1875. Preakness Stakes was run in 1873, and Belmont Stakes was 1867. Okay. So, Michael, I have a, I know you won't get this, but I'll ask both you and Lisa. I'm I'm probably just going to ask Lisa because Michael, I know you won't. I know you won't get this. Uh, of, of all the three races, the big three, the Triple Crown. Uh, the Kentucky Derby, of course, is the run for the roses because the the winner is blanketed in a in a blanket made of, of roses. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the Preakness is the Black God Susans. Correct. What is Lisa? What is the Belmont known for? White carnation. I didn't know this until this, there. You go. I did not know that until I just just read that. I I, I guess because. I knew the Black Eyed Susans, and I knew the the Run for the Roses, but I guess mm-hmm. lost in translation of the Belmont, considering here lately we've had a lot of Triple Crown looks. I didn't even realize it was a carnation. So that was an interesting thing mm-hmm. to me. Well, yeah. All I'd like to now, that one I knew even before I started researching. I guess my I guess my Rose Bowl analogy for the Kentucky Derby was pretty good then. I didn't even know that. I yeah. <laughs> and uh and then the distances it's it's interesting the Kentucky Derby is one and a quarter Preakness Stakes is one and three sixteenths which is a little bit shorter hundred meters shorter and then Belmont Stakes is a mile and a half. Well Felicia, so I guess you Belmont know it's Sorry. No, no, it's fine. I was just, I was going in here and I tell you what, Michael, now we know we're in, this year they're running for $1.5 million, which includes 800000 to the winner. Mm-hmm. Can you take, can you take a guess, Michael, as to what the total purse of the very first Belmont Stakes was? Give me a year. <laughs> I was 151 years ago, Michael. You said 161? 151 years ago. Okay, 151 years ago, I'm going to say 1000 bucks. The close. The first the first purse for the Belmont Stakes. Now this is 1867, so I'm pretty sure $2500 is what the answer was. <laughs> was a larger wow. amount than what we would look at it today. And oh, yeah. The Rufus, and the Philly Rufus took home the $1,850 winner's share of that. So, I mean, I mean, that's just, and I know that, I mean, I guess I could Google what $2,500 would equate to 150 years ago. But I mean. Look, I think most people have a household income of more than twenty five hundred dollars a person. It's just... Well, I mean, you're talking yeah, about in, back then people making what ten. In eighteen sixty seven. Oh, I know, I know, but I think... okay. 
I've the uh, twenty five hundred dollars in eighteen sixty would be the equivalent of seventy six thousand nine seventy two today. That's uh, okay. Awesome. Yeah, I just googled. That. I love Google. I love Google. I do too. <laughs> Inflation. Now it won't let me look. Eighteen sixty-seven. I, I tried. Okay. There's. Yeah. Eighteen sixty-five would be thirty-nine thousand. Oh, because that has to do with the economy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, shoot. I remember looking, and I don't know the exact amount, but. You know, I'm sure it also has to – it grew as far as the purse goes with the prestige of the event. Like, you know, for example, like I'm going to equate it to something I know, the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, a 30-second spot in the original Super Bowl wasn't that much, but now you're talking about, you know, almost a billion dollars, I believe. Yeah. Okay, I have found another one, but it would it requires math, so I'm out. Um, <laughs> in twenty in eighteen sixty seven, one dollar was worth sixteen dollars and fifteen cents. Man, I'd be loaded. Because that's post that's post Civil War. Sixteen dollars and ninety five cents. Excuse me. Hey, Brad. So a dollar in eighteen sixty seven. Would be worth sixteen ninety five today. I think we need the time machine, Brad. We'd be loaded back then. <laughs> we were born in the wrong time. Michael, that would just mean your yeah. debt would increase. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, because that's post Civil War, and then it wasn't until eighteen seventy eight that the economy rebounded. And you know, one dollar in eighteen eighty-three would be twenty-five dollars. So don't go to eighteen sixty-seven, Michael. You want to clean up? Go to eighteen ninety-nine. Well, Lisa, okay. I need to ask you something. You've you've done some research. Uh, I was looking here on Wikipedia at the former winners. And apparently from 1867 to 1873, it was run as a mile and five eighths. And then it goes from 74 to 1888, it's a mile and a, or 1889, it's a mile and a half. Then it goes to a mile and a quarter, a mile and an eighth, a mile and a quarter, a mile and three eighths, back to a mile and a quarter, a mile and three eighths, until 1926 when it's gone to a mile and a half and stayed there. Yeah. You know, you I think they may have been doing – well, no, but I'm I'm guessing just kind of an educated guess. The distances were probably, you know, in reaction to jockey club owners, trainers, thinking a mile and a half was too much. Or simply that, you know, nobody thought a horse could run a mile and a half. Because I was just noticing, so, just looking at these times, a mile and five-eighths being run at 2.56 and 2.59 and mm-hmm. three minutes and four seconds. I was... There may have been, like I said, there may have been multiple factors 
that, you know, went from the longest distance was one and five apes, 2,600 meters. And then they went to a mile and a half, but then maybe nobody, you know, the favorites weren't winning. Because that's the thing that everybody says about Belmont is it really, it gives the underdogs a better chance, especially ones that are stalkers. Because they have more room to catch up to the leader and overtake him. And I think that's been the the bane of several Triple Crown runs uh, over the years is that, you know, the, the, the favorite has been within a quarter of the finish line and then somebody else has come and overtaken them. See, now, what was interesting... Well, what was interesting about that is that I watched uh, earlier. I was watching the, the DRF, which is the Daily Racing Forum, which is the holy grail of handicapping. <laughs> and I was watching. I was actually watching the recap of the post draws, and uh, uh-huh. that made a distinct point to say that. That is the general conception, but that, like, out of the last five races, that three out of the five have actually been, like, tactical runners that have stayed towards the front for the most part because of the distance of a mile and a a half. You almost have to be precise with when you finally sit down on your horse and you ask it to run um, Mm -hmm. because – you could do it too early and burn him up with a 16th to go. And Correct. so, you know, that was one of the things that presents itself to horses like, uh, you know, Jovia and uh, the other one, Tax, things of that nature. And we'll get into that, I'm sure, as we move along. But that was interesting because I was always under the conception that, you know, a horse that, like to stalk the front uh, and lay back a little bit, had the opportunity to move, and that was things that I was watching for in, like, the Kentucky and the Preakness were the mm-hmm. horses that made their move at the end. And now that I've gone back and watched a few races after having they, after they had said that, it's interesting to see how that really does kind of play itself out. It is. You have to be, I think, I think you're right. You have to be the most tactful and you have to know your horse in the Belmont Stakes. Um, if you look at Secretariat's Triple Crown, in Kentucky Derby and Preakness, Secretariat was running behind everybody for a good ways before he made his move and took the lead and, and held it. But I think in Belmont, pretty early, uh, he just wanted to run. And Ronnie Turcott let him run. And he he left everybody behind him in the dust. I mean, so, I'm trying but to think Ronnie, of that one race, Lisa. Um, and it was in the Belmont. It was... Um, 
It was a foiled triple crown bid, and I think it was because they put a pace-pressing horse out in the field, and it literally smoked the clocks at the first two turn at the first two markers. And I I'm talking about it was the, a hot I, I think the one that you're thinking, maybe thinking of, is 2014. California Chrome. He was making his bid for the Triple Crown. He had easily won Kentucky Derby and Preakness. And then he had a bad start. Uh, got mugged coming out of the gate. Actually did injure one of his uh, legs. And Tonalist came up behind and overtook him and ended up winning Belmont. And hit one of his owners made some very bitter comments in the grandstand because he was very hurt that, you know, this horse he believed in was he felt denied his chance. Frankly, I always thought that you know, Victor Espinosa was checking under his arm thinking he had the race and he wasn't paying attention and didn't see Tonalist coming up beside him. And yeah, so was, he I, was just kind of loping along thinking he had it in the bag when he didn't. And that's one of the examples of the the, the longer distance. Because as I recall, that's how the race played out. That was another one that broke my heart because I wanted, I wanted California Chrome to win the Triple Crown. Yeah, see, I just I remember sort of the race you're talking about, uh, but I go back and and I mean. I think of horses that I don't think had been that long ago, and I think what Big Brown was oh eight. Yeah, two thousand eight. See there, and, and that's how I'm like, man, like that was eleven years ago, and like, I feel he, like that was like two races ago. He, yeah, he had uh, Big Brown had an issue with one of his hooves, and he was not running the Belmont Stakes the way he had run Kentucky Derby and Preakness. And another one that broke my heart um, because I wanted him to, I wanted him to win the triple crown. (laughs) Um, But he just, he just didn't have it in him. And I've read in other uh, sources, I wish I had found, could find a video that Big Brown was actually acting up in the paddock and acting up in the uh, quarantine stall and kicking and, you know, just being a terror. And so he may have wrung himself out even before the race started. Well, well, Michael could probably attest to that. To this is honestly, and 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 being uh, from Arkansas, it's you know, Lisa, 
the uh, a lot of the Triple Crown contenders have actually come out of the Oakland, or excuse me, the Arkansas Derby. Uh, yeah, I think absolutely. that started the trend with with Smarty Jones. And I think Smarty Jones is the race that I'm thinking about, Lisa, in the Belmont, when, um, what's his name, uh, set a blistering pace. And I think that's what caused Smarty to, because Smarty was a wire-to-wire guy. Yeah. It could be. I mean, I I don't recall seeing that one. But uh, I'm sending you, I sent you a link for the California Chrome one. And I'll send you a link for the uh, Tonalist, Smarty Jones. Uh, I love Google and I love YouTube. Uh, (laughs) Well, I definitely I wish they would pay us. I definitely can attest to, you know, uh, the Arkansas Derby because that's one of the biggest things whenever yeah. it's coming up. They always talk about, you know, Smarty and the fact that, you know, like I was asking you, you know, we talked about uh, horse racing before on here and I asked, you know, is the Arkansas Derby kind of a gateway race because mm-hmm. you know, it does that's one of their big sellers. American Pharaoh. Yeah, a lot of the yeah. big uh, a lot of the big names have come through the Arkansas Derby there at Oakland. But guess who didn't? Who? Take a guess. Justify. Really? Yeah. He ran all of his. Uh, he ran all of his qualifying races, I believe, in California. Well, didn't he come? No, I guess that would make sense, though. Pardon? I said, didn't Justify come out of the Santa Anita Derby? Yes, he did. Speaking of that, they're under a lot of uh, scrutiny. Isn't isn't uh, I'm assuming though with Justify not running the Arkansas Derby, isn't it kind of something based upon where the horse is racing out of? Like uh, well, you know, all the well, southern horses may come through the Arkansas Derby and. No, because American Pharaoh was also, uh, I think, based in California with Bob Baffert. But he went to Arkansas. I think with with Justify, because he didn't race as a two-year-old, they really had to do almost an accelerated plan with him to qualify him and get him into the Kentucky Derby. And so they didn't want to risk shipping him a lot. And so they, they did all their prep in California. And then until it was time to bring him to Churchill Downs. Okay. Okay, yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, just one of the explanations I came up with because it does seem like now is and I'll ask you this, Brad: Is horse racing prevalent throughout the country, or is it something where a lot of these horses are located? Where a lot of these races I've seen, you know, in the South. Well, uh, no, it's it's become 
the the money has become so good uh, along a lot of the tracks that these guys will fly these horses in um, a week or so before the race, get them accustomed to, you know, accustomed to the track. And, and then a lot of them, like, you have to look at, at uh, you know, to qualify for a lot of these big stakes races, like the Kentucky Derby, which I think is considered a grade one event, you have to have certain wins. And now, of course, you have to have a point system that was just implemented today. But uh, sorry, Lisa, I was in the middle of watching this. I remember this one. Oh, that's okay. Damn it, he was coming around the turn late. <laughs> What a horse, though. A lot of people considered um, Smarty Jones to almost be the next Secretariat because if memory serves me correct, he left people at the Preakness in the Kentucky, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I I, I, I didn't research that. Um, that's We'll do that next year. <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of people, like, I'm sure Michael doesn't, probably can't, doesn't remember the, or doesn't understand the pageantry of horse racing. I, uh, un- unfortunately, I guess, to some degree, my grandfather, like, knew the bookies better than he knew his family. And uh, yeah, my uncle, obviously, was involved in, in the business itself. Um, but... I mean, there's there's a pageantry to to horse racing. I mean, it's it's called the sport of kings, and uh, you know now though it, it's it's widely accepted amongst uh, you know just about everybody, especially like those that love to gamble. I mean, I guess maybe with the advent. I mean, we're talking there was a what a 38 year window, Lisa, before the Triple Crown has yes. been looked at again. I think it was 79, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, so, it was. Um, no, it was seventy-three, seventy-seven, seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. Okay, the year I was born was the last triple crown one. And so, correct. Uh, you know, so no, Michael. I mean, it's it's fun. I mean, it really is. And there is a science to what they call handicapping, which is basically deciphering loads of what some people would consider useless information, um, past performances, um, track conditions, classes, stuff like that. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping we get service out in, in Ola, Arkansas, where we're going to be at for the Belmont, because it is interesting to me. Uh, it's not as intriguing as, it would be if we had a compulsory, I mean, a triple crown shot. But, but for the most part, it's still one of the best races to me because I understand the strategy that the jocks uh, implore with these horses. I mean, you know, some people just think you get on them and ride them. But there is a level of skill. I mean, Michael, I don't know if you've ever watched one, but uh, when you watch a horse race and you notice that the jock is kind of got his – backside up in the air and he's just kind of standing there at that point he's right. just letting the horse run you know his what the horse yeah. wants to do and he's just yeah. basically there to kind of control him and keep him in the lane that he wants him to be in and then when they start to turn at the 
turn it's coming down the stretch, you'll notice that the jock will sit down on him, and that's when he starts to basically ask the horse to run. So it's it's it's, it's a skill to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure, and that's why, uh, from what I understand, don't the jockeys. Uh, isn't there like two separate port purses, like a jockey championship purse and a horse championship purse? I think well, the way work? they do it, the the horse the purse is split between the the horse owners, jockey and trainer, and it's percentage. And if you oh, finish in the money, you make good money. Jockeys get mo- jockeys are paid whether they win or not, whether they finish in the money or not. It's just that if they finish in the money, first, second, third, they get paid a little bit more. And they don't get paid a lot yeah, I mean, when they they're not winning. They get what's called a mount fee, Michael. I mean, and, and in these races. You know, we're not talking. Yeah. Maybe maybe five hundred bucks at a local track for a claiming race, or if that's and I don't know the percentage or the money, but I'm talking about these types of races. Mm-hmm. They're probably getting ten grand to ride that horse, and that may be lowball. Um, but these guys that are that you're seeing in the Belmont Stakes are not your your average. Everyday right. Belmont jockeys. These guys are flown right. in, or they're already there, um, mixed in with a couple of locals. But no, these are the Mike Smiths of the world, the Pat Days, the Robbie. And they have agents. Yeah. Yeah. And they have agents okay. who, uh, you know, get their mounts and and work with the trainers and you know, negotiate the the contract and the purses and whatever. They're the big, and, and then they've earned, you know, they've earned their, they've earned their right to that because they've been doing this a long time and have proven that they're good with the horses. Uh, some of them can get on a horse for the very first time and do exceptionally well. Like Mike Smith, I think, you know, all he has to do is look at the horse, and the horse is going to win. So let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly, and either one of you can can correct me if I'm wrong, but does that mean that, and I'm assuming just because you threw his name out there, Mike Smith can ride one horse in the Kentucky Derby, but then he could be riding a completely different horse in the Belmont? Correct. He could now, be, it very well could be. Most jockeys will stay on the horse that they ride in the Kentucky Derby and in the Preakness um, because of, like, Mike Smith will actually be on board of Bourbon War. Bourbon uh, War, yeah. On front of the Mark Henning. Uh, I believe he rode him in the Preakness. Correct. If I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, but now... You know, Baffert's got his guys that he uses, and and I'm sure they have some kind of agreement where, and of course, if you're a jockey, it's just like an NBA player, Michael. If you get the opportunity and the call to ride a Bob Baffert horse, well, you're going to do it because uh-huh. Bob Baffert's horses are, are pretty much going to be contenders. 
yeah, okay. and and uh, an interesting an interesting uh, illustration of that, Michael. In 2009, Calvin Burrell, uh, homeboy from Louisiana, I love him to death. He rode mine that bird, who was the 50 to one winner of the Kentucky Derby. When Preetness time came around, mine that bird was running, but so was Rachel Alexandra. And uh-huh. Calvin chose to ride Rachel Alexandra. Guess who won the Preakness? Rachel Alexandra? Exactly. But so he had I'm ridden her. And, you know, I mean, the jockeys have some loyalty. See, the match race between Ruffian and Foolish Pleasure. Ruffian's jockey had ridden Foolish Pleasure. But in the match race, he chose Ruffian. Okay. Because he thought she was the better horse. And they can do that. And the trainers don't generally have a problem with that. They understand that. That's happened to Bob Baffert. And he said, no, I I understand. I, you know, I like that horse. Mark Cassie has said, no, I understand if that were my horse. You know, I'd love for that to be my horse, but it's not. So they so understand it's equate, it's a business. I'm going to equate this to once again to uh, uh, you know other sports. So instead of like a year long racing circuit contract, these guys are able to then be put in almost, in my mind, an advantageous position of negotiating race by race. So a guy can win the Kentucky Derby, and all of a sudden he can go back to his owner and double the fee because he won the Kentucky Derby now, correct? Correct. Well, correct, but I mean... I think to a degree. I think the overall record helps contribute to that. Okay. I mean, absolutely... Because, Michael, just, just to give you an idea, uh, one of the jockeys that, that's running this weekend is, uh, let me see, and um, anyway, he has a lifetime earning record of almost $404 million. Good Lord. Total, people, total purses in his lifetime. Uh, Velasquez, I believe, was his name. Uh, Lisa, I, I did not realize that they had accumulated that type of money. Oh yeah. Um, Here it is. Wait, John his Velasquez. wait, John Velasquez. Yes, he was on Bodie. He was on Bodie Express. Right, and and what a tragedy that was. Well, it was. It, it was not. It wasn't tragic. It could have been, but it wasn't. Now, I, I, oh, wait, that's Intrepid Heart. Let me look at the, I've got, I've got the jockeys. I don't have them in order. (laughs) Well, no, what I'm saying is, I was looking at uh, AmericasBestRacing.net, Michael. Um, In 2019 Mm -hmm. alone, Velasquez has had 65 firsts, 55 seconds, and 53rd places with 152 unplaced and 322 starts. 
and he mm-hmm. has earned seven million nine hundred thirty-seven thousand nine hundred three dollars for a for an average of twenty-four thousand six hundred and fifty-two dollars a start. All I'm going to say is, wow. Now that's not his money. Not all of that is his money. That's just he's won a purse here and a purse there. So I mean, that's just what he won for the owners and the job and the trainers that he's been on in his lifetime. He's won four hundred and four million dollars worth of races. Goodness gracious! Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a short guy. I think I'm in the wrong business. Well, well, let's how tall are you though? He ain't big. He's How tall, tall are you, Michael? I'm How much do you weigh? Because you got to remember, uh, jockeys have to be able to make weight. And the I uh, think the maximum weight is like 123 pounds. That would include saddle well, and equipment. I'm going to need you to uh, train me, and we'll split the purse, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Michael, you make you joke about that, but there was actually a documentary uh, series on jockeys, and that mm-hmm. lifestyle is very difficult. I mean, oh, I oh yeah. Uh, the politics in the jockey room and at the track, and the weight, and you know, just. But if you think about it, the top jockeys, and and let's be honest. When you get to the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont, you're looking at 20 jockeys. There's probably tens of thousands of jockeys that will never uh, see this level. Right. But, you know, this guy literally, just to put it into perspective, uh, uh, Secretariat ran the Belmont in, what, two minutes and 24 seconds, which was an absolute blistering pace and and record. Mm -hmm. Uh Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the average horse race is around two two minutes and something. So, in a two minute time span, this guy is earning twenty four thousand six hundred fifty two dollars to start. And that's if he ran a mile and a quarter, it would be what minute fifty, minute forty something. I can't remember, but I mean, it's crazy the money that's out there in this business. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Mike, Mike Smith's career earnings are four million eight thirty two. Oh no, that four million in twenty nineteen. Mm. Wow. Three hundred and twenty two lifetime. Goodness. Goodness. We're only halfway through too. That's crazy. Brad, I'm gonna need you to uh-huh. do that documentary stuff. That actually does sound interesting. I'll have to find it. It was actually pretty neat to watch. I mean, now I have been, you know, I was I was young and I didn't have any licenses or anything like that. I was just kind of helping, but you know what what my uncle would do is in the paddock, you know, I would hold the horse still, and the jock would mount him, and and before he would though, they would go through their final instructions. Basically, what my uncle wanted to accomplish. With that race, and here's you know the thing now not at this level, but at the local level, and Lisa probably could attest to it as well, is there's times where you put a horse in, and we wanted my uncle would put a horse in a race, knowing that he wasn't going to win, but he mm-hmm. wanted to get him some gate work with other with yeah. other horses around, so he would put him in that mm-hmm. race, and this horse 
dominated, 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 and he would be the odds-on favorite. But we were only working him. It was basically a work, a cheap work. Uh, obviously, you know, you have to be careful in claiming races because you can lose your horse. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, then there was times we'd put a distance horse in a six-furlong race just so we could get him some sprint work. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this that a lot of people don't really understand and comprehend. But it's, it's, it's super interesting to watch it as it unfolds and when they're talking and – you know, me and Lisa disagreed on the Kentucky Derby's outcome. But, you know, there's a lot of, like, that horse there was a very young, maximum security was super young and made the mistake of crossing lanes at the wrong time, mm-hmm. and it cost them. But, you know, there's just a lot of things, Michael, that go into it, but I will definitely look that up for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, now, I'm not gonna lie. You kind of lost me. You kind of lost me and started talking over my head when you're talking about sprint horses and four furlongs and uh huh. Well, Whoa. and Lisa, you can correct me. A lot of at least I don't know. Are you a distance? Do you enjoy a distance race? Because I've noticed that I am more apt, especially when I'm gambling on horses that I tend to stay in the six furlong category, which is a shorter race. It's more or less like a, you know, it's not your, the four furlong drag races, as I call them. I've seen that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I like them all. I do tend to prefer the two turn longer races. Um, we had TVG for a while. And I would watch, like, the night racing from Charlestown, I think somewhere in the Northeast, and uh, they played uh, fairgrounds racing. I haven't actually been to the fairgrounds in ages. I really need to go. Um, But uh, I kind of tend to like the two-turn longer races. Uh, But I watch some of the maiden special weights and – I think sometimes the maiden special weights and allowance races sometimes are better just to build up a horse's confidence before moving on to the the higher grade one, grade two, grade three races. Right. And Michael's over here going, allowance, what is this? Yeah. And then I I saw a couple of claiming races on, uh, on TVG where the price was, you know, the price of the horse was like $28,000. Google's getting about one. one. And, and the, the commentators are saying, oh, I bet you that, I bet you that guy's hoping nobody buys that horse. <laughs> well, Michael, a claiming race is, is where each horse in the field has a price and can be purchased by any person that makes a valid claim prior to the running of the race. Usually what happens, is in Oakland for sure. I don't know about other tracks, but you'll go down to the barn and there'll be what they call, I think it's a claiming attendant. And what you'll do Uh is you'll go through the list of these horses and okay, we're in a thousand dollar claiming race or a $10,000 claiming race. And you'll put $10,000 up and you'll 
uh, you'll say, I'm going to make a claim on that horse right there. Now, I don't know the specifics of if multiple people make a claim on a horse, how they do that. But really and truly what it is, Michael, is that if me and Lisa go, let's go down to the track and let's, 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 we've been watching this horse. It, It looks good. They put it in the claiming race because it, I don't think it costs much to put them in a claiming race, if anything, really. No. Because they are able to be purchased, they're claimed. But if I go lease it, this horse looks really good. It's had it's had a lot of good past performances. Let's claim it. We put ten grand on this horse because that's the claiming price. At the end of that race, if we win the drawing or if we're the only one that claims it, at the end of that race, We've claimed that horse, and I believe, I believe we we would then basically own that horse. Uh, yes. I don't know if we get the prize money that it just won or anything, but yes, that 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 would become our horse. We're, that would be oh, our wow. horse. We we wouldn't get the prize for that race. If that horse was first or second or third, we would not get that prize money. But the horse would be ours, and maximum security, if I recall collect correctly, was like a sixteen thousand dollar claiming race. There was another uh, triple crown contender that came out of a small claiming that turned out to be just ridiculous. Mhm. I don't remember who it was. Um. So, but. So basically, if you're a horse owner and you, you know, don't believe that a horse is going to be worth anything or something, do you put it in this claiming race and allow somebody else to take over it? Or is there legitimate contenders in these things? I think that probably if it, if it hasn't been doing well for you, and sometimes trainers own horses as well, and if they maybe, you know, the the – the horse doesn't make it any money and, and they can't keep putting out money. Cause I think trainers put out a lot of money out of their own pockets that they don't always make up in purses, uh, depending on the owners as well. So, uh, yeah. Charismatic was a claimer. $62,500. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and he would have he would have won the triple crown if he hadn't broken down three strides before the wire. Is that the one that the jockey realized he was hurt and actually stopped him and got off of him and held yes. him? Yes. 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 Chris Antley, uh, bless his heart, he had his own issues. Uh, the horse was saved. The horse lived. The horse went on to stud career and then went to a stud career in Japan and was returned to the United States to old friends in, I believe, 2014 or 2015 and unfortunately passed away in late 2016 or early 2017 just a spontaneous ruptured blood vessel in the pelvis. Or spont- now, you know, he broke his pelvis. He he cribbed himself. Uh, not he. What is it when they get their legs stuck and they can't get up? 
cribbing. Brad, when they get like stuck in a stall or against a fence, where they can't get their uh, legs underneath them and stand up. I'm trying to think. Uh, You would ask me that. Um, (laughs) Google. Google. Um, I'm googling now. (laughs) And and there's a term. Um, uh, stall or fence. Well, while y'all are Googling, I do have another question to pose to y'all. Because, and what Casting. you said in the previous. Cast horse. Sorry, Michael. Okay. Oh, you're fine. What you have said when speaking on that horse kind of made me think about this situation. And I'm sure one of you is automatically going to know who I'm talking about. But wasn't there a horse a couple years ago that was doing, like, freaking fantastic and uh, in these races? And I'm not sure whether they were going for the Triple Crown or not. But I just remember that they, like, I want to say they broke a leg or something. And it was, like, huge news on ESPN, I remember, for, like, a week. Whether they were going to, number one, have to even put this horse down. You're thinking of you're thinking of Barbaro in two thousand six. He uh he came out of the gate in the preakness and his one of his rear legs, I can't remember which one, was shattered. Uh again, the jockey knew right away Edgar Prado. Uh Edgar mm-hmm. Prado wrote a beautiful book. Uh and there are a couple of great books about Barbaro. Uh, for the readers out there, and he jumped off, held him still. The equine ambulance came. Uh, the race was in Maryland, so they went to New Bolton, which is in Pennsylvania. Uh, he was cared for. He was doing well for four months, and then he developed laminitis, which is, uh, I think, wasting away on the hooves. Brad, mm-hmm. yes, and uh, so. or an infection in the hooves, and it's 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 an infection, but the infection eats away at the hooves, and then starts eating away at the bones. Uh, it's really nasty, and horses can develop it when they're not putting equal weight on all four legs. Okay. And Barbaro developed laminitis. It improved, and then it it developed in the three unaffected limbs and they had done everything that they could uh, and his owners uh, did not want him to suffer anymore and he was put down. And then there was eight bells in 2008 who broke down after the Kentucky Derby. Eight bells was actually put to death. Is Pardon? it true that they literally shoot all these racehorses, or do they euthanize them like they no. would any other animals in the vet's office? More likely than not, it's an injection. It's not a shooting. It's probably a, a sedative. Uh, even back in the 70s, I think they were moving toward a sedative and then uh 
probably something to stop the heart. Now, Michael, you're talking about that. Uh, if you were to look up eight bells, was actually euthanized at the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, on uh-huh. the track. Oh, man. Now, and, and speaking of that, she was the first filly in the history of Oakland to win the Martha Washington State. And uh, mm-hmm. she won it by 13 and a half lengths, which set a record. But, yeah, she was actually euthanized at the Kentucky Derby. Uh, she broke down approximately an eighth of a mile after the wire and uh, compound fractures to both ankles and was immediately euthanized. Now, what you'll see, um, and the reason that she was euthanized at the track was because the doctor at the time, Larry Bramlage, had said her her injuries were too severe to even attempt to move her. So um, they literally will come out and they will put the, the tent around them and they'll do what they have to do. And Yeah. Uh, you know, and of course, I felt bad for Gabriel Fiez. Um, you know, his prize money, or no, excuse me, PETA called for his suspension and the prize money to be revoked because he had been found at fault. Now, that's the story altogether, but. How can you be at fault for a horse that's running full speed? Things happen. It happens to NBA players. It happens to football players. Right. Stuff happens. How could one be found at fault, Brad? Well, let me look that up because I this this again this was uh, 2008. So I'd have to look well, that and up. I, but, uh, you know, it just confuses me because you know nobody's quote unquote found at fault when a uh, high profile athlete you know tears his Achilles or something you know. It's just one of those things that, hey, this athlete is, you know, it's one of those things that comes with the territory. So I don't quite understand how you could blame a a jockey, assuming that's who we're talking about. uh, Okay, Michael, this is what mm -hmm. happened. Um, Apparently, at some point during the race, uh, he Applied the whip okay. To prevent Isn't her from normal? going into the rail Well she was going into the rail mm-hmm. um, So you know I, I, I would think that the, the, the best thing for both horse and jockey Is to prevent horse from going into rail Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That makes sense um, So he whipped her to prevent her from going into the rail. Now, whether that has anything to do with the the breakdown, I don't know. Well, and Larry yeah, I was Jones about to say. said that, uh, that they have photographs 50 to 70 yards from where this happened that the horse had her ears up. And yeah. if this horse had anything going on with it at the time, she didn't know it. Correct. And Michael, you asked about she the was doctor. a quarter mile these past the finish get... line when her, when she get... broke down. That's that's wow. the same thing with Ruffian. Ruffian birds flew across her path and she took a bad step and fractured one of her front ankles. Um, 
And, you know, it was almost the same thing. And she kept trying to run. And one of the reasons she didn't survive after surgery was because she was so keyed up prior to surgery and anesthesia that when she came out of anesthesia, she was trying to run again. And she not only redamaged the original break, but I believe broke the other leg. And so they they had to euthanize her because she wouldn't have survived a second surgery. You know, I horses are one of the most poorly designed creatures on the planet because they're a 900-pound barrel with a 20-pound neck and head on 10-pound legs. Right. Well, and Brad, I, and I don't the, know what you were... The bones in their... Sorry. Some of the bones in their legs are the size of your fingers. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Dang. Well, I don't know what you were going to say, Brad, but definitely, I mean, all of this just keeps speaking to me like you can't blame... I, I, and we all know, I'm pretty sure we're all consistent, can come to a consensus that Pete's insane, but, you know, to blame a jockey for something, that's like blaming Phil Jackson for Kobe Bryant going down. You know, that makes no sense to me. So, um. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't think the whip, I don't think being whipped to keep her off the rail and Larry Jones, in his comments defending Saez, said um, that, you know, Eight Bells tends to drift toward the rail. It's her comfort zone, and Gabriel knows this. Uh, and, and and this is where people, you know, PETA see everything as abuse. Right. When sometimes there's a legitimate purpose. And like I said, the safest thing for horse and rider as well as other horses on the track is for a horse not to drift into the rail during a race or a workout. (laughs) It sounds like a situation where the horse was going to be put down anyway, the Jockey kind of just saved his own butt in that case because if that horse well, I, went over the rail, I'm sure it and, would have done even more damage. Correct, exactly. And and Gabriel Saez might have been killed as well. But I, you know, another thing with Eight Bells and Ruffian, and I don't know if Brad has ever uh, ever heard this or is familiar with it, but Barbaro, Eight Bells, and Ruffian were both pretty heavily inbred to a native dancer who almost all of his progeny and all of their progeny have had soft bones, multiple breaks, and some of them ultimately died or were put down after breaking limbs. So then at what point does this owner... That, see, and that sounds like an owner issue. What is this owner not learning from making the same mistake? Well, no, and it's actually, it's actually not 
you know, I think it's something that's come to light in the last, I'd say, I heard first heard the theory about 15, well, in 2008 after 8 Bells. And then, so I looked at her pedigree, Ruffian's pedigree, Barbara's pedigree, and they are. And then looking at the history of Native Dancer and, and a lot of his um, sons and daughters and, and their sons and daughters, there is kind of a high a, a high occurrence of broken limbs. But it's not something they knew at the time, and all horses are inbred to a degree. Because you you look for certain traits, um, right? Speed, stamina, distance, turf, dirt. You know, in the pedigrees, and that involves inbreeding, and then certain sire lines and certain female lines work better together. Uh huh. So you take a bold ruler and you look for. Uh, Galileo. I don't understand that part of it at all. Right. But um, maybe, you know, but that could be it. And I, I think Native dancers are. We're not seeing Native dancer as much in the pedigrees as we used to. Right. Which maybe Brad can speak to that a little bit more as far as that goes with the uh, with the actual what goes into the side and all that. But yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like if everybody else can see it, why can't the owner? So I mean, if Pete is going after anybody, hey, how about the owner? Well, it's not necessarily the owner is not necessarily the person who bred the horse. Okay, really. Okay. And like I said, the the people who bred, and and you look at Barbaro's brother, full brother Nicanor, uh, he's still relatively young, but he's now alive and well and living at Old Friends. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't always happen. But like I said, the first time I heard the theory was, after eight bells in two thousand eight, and so it kind of it's kind of a hindsight thing. It's not something the breeders would have known when they bred Barbaro or eight bells or ruffian. It's not even something native dancers breeders would have known. Okay. Now, hopefully, someday medicine and genetics. They will maybe, you know, maybe get a blood sample from Nicanor and analyze his blood sample and identify whether there's a gene that leads to brittle bones. I think that's something they can do in human genetics now. That's certainly what 23andMe says they can do or one of those DNA companies. But, and I think Brad, are you still there? Or are yeah, you yelling at your dogs again? <laughs> no, yeah, I would say Brad. A horse's a, a horse's ankle is probably about the same size 
as a person, a human's angle, you know, diameter-wise and bone structure-wise, would you, would you, do you think that's accurate? I would say that it's pretty close. I would say that it's pretty, pretty close. I was, uh, um, you know, of course, now the horse has several different, you know, they don't really say ankle, you know, like they have the fetlock and the pastern. And, yeah. And then, you know, all of Because the mechanics are, are different. But I would say that, that uh, you know, they're, they're uh, I was just kind of looking that up, actually, when you said that. Um <laughs> Because it's been a long time since I've, uh, you know, done anything like that. I mean, I haven't been around that distance years as far as this goes. Um, it's been since the mid-90s. Um, but they are – and, Michael, one of the things about the jockey, too, is that these aren't just guys that get paid to ride horses. I mean, they're they're pretty knowledgeable and they're familiar a lot of the big time guys are familiar with the horses that they ride. Uh, they'll they'll ride them in training and when they go to breed them and whatnot. Um, you know they do have jocks that, that will do that while these guys are gone. But a lot of these guys are familiar with the horse they're on. They know its characteristics, so they can tell uh, when an animal is something's not right. And that was the big right. thing with Eight Bells as jockey is that they were trying to say that he knew something was right, but that because he was in second place to Big Brown, that he kept it going. How do you feel? Which about is that? right. You know what you tell about it. Right. I, I don't. I, I I don't think that that he did anything malicious. Um, because number one, these 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 become. To these jockeys, these become like pets to a degree. They, it's a living thing that they, they're basically like really good teammates, honestly. And, you know, at this level, I'm not saying that, that on certain levels in horse racing that some of these horses are, are treated fair, you know, really well. But at this level, these horses are treated better than me and you. Um, they fly. A lot of them have private flights that they take on special planes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're fed top-notch food. Uh, their paddocks probably resemble, you know, one of our living rooms. You know, they they are well taken care of at that point uh, because these they have an investment. Right. They get they get to kick and bite people that they don't like. And nobody does anything or says they can't do it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they are they are very well cared for, especially trainers of the caliber of, you know, Baffert, Pletcher, Cassie. Um, and they know the horses, too. Mm-hmm. So and the grooms, uh, you know, the grooms spend twenty four seven with them. Mhm. 
I can imagine and, uh, they, something like that. I, I, every horse I've ever seen go from racing to stud, including Secretariat back in the 70s. Uh, his groom, Eddie Sweat, he knew he was going on to something better, but this grown man cried. Right. When he had to finally leave after taking care of Secretariat for two years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, American Pharaoh's groom, uh, California Chrome's groom, Justifies groom, you know, they've all, they've gone back to visit at when, you know, the horses are at stud and the horses, another thing, the horses recognize them and remember them. And you can tell. Uh-huh. So, so um, no, these horses are well cared for. And I don't, I don't, I think what happened with eight bells happened in an instant. Right. And there was no warning. And because that's what happened with Ruffian, that's what happened with Barbaro. Because when people ask Edgar Prado, I mean, Barbaro came out of the gate and it, his leg broke. And everybody asked him what happened, what happened? And Edgar Prado says, I don't know. He didn't take a kick. He didn't stumble. Mm. So, um, yeah, like I, eight bells was not, you know, was not beaten and forced to run faster than she could. Uh Um, So, and it may have been a combination of the track surface, uh, Genetics, bad step as she was cooling out. You know, it's kind of like that Titanic. Mm-hmm. Multiple things went wrong, and that's why the ship sank. Right. But, you know, any one of those things not happening might have changed the outcome, but probably not. Okay. So, all right. Well, do you want to go ahead and and skip on to the to the Belmont Stakes? Yeah, I kind of got us off track. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. You're. These are topics we can talk about next year. So. Uh, This year, we've got 10 horses, Belmont Stakes limits uh, 16, so they're under the limit, and the post positions were pulled today, drawn today, and we have Jovia in post one, Everfast two, Master Fencer in three, Tax in four, Bourbon War 5, Spinoff 6, Sir Winston 7, Intrepid Heart 8, War of Will 9, and Tacitus in Post 10. So 
I think with such a small field, the post position isn't really going to play much of a factor, if any, in the race. Would you agree with that, Brad? Can I say that one more time? I don't think because the field is so small, post position isn't going to play a part. I don't think. No, I don't. I don't think so either. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing about this is, you know, uh, Jovia had an option to run at Monmouth Park uh, for a $150,000 purse against maximum security. I didn't know if you knew that or not. I had read something about that today. Uh, and I I read something the other day. I actually didn't even have him on my initial outline because I had read something on Horse Racing Nation that said he wasn't going to run in Belmont. And then yesterday that all changed. And this could change as far as who's running and who's not running. And that that's the other you know that's the thing about the horse about horse racing the highs lows unpredictable as we saw with the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness you just never you never know exactly what's going to happen you can hope and you can try to plan but what is that saying man plans and God laughs right. I mean, you've and got then, a lot of contenders in here. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, definitely. And they also now I got the odds I got are from bloodhorse.com. dot uh, com. So if you look at America's Best Racing, Daily Racing Form, uh. Pollock report, you may see different odds, uh, slightly different numbers, vastly different numbers. And on the day of the race, those numbers could change. If nobody's putting money on Sir Winston, Everfast, spinoff, and tax, their odds will go up. Right, obviously. If a lot of people are putting money on them, they'll go down. So, uh, and this is actually just a random order uh, that I put the horses in when I was assembling my outline, and I didn't have a chance to change it after the post positions were drawn. So the odds are right now, Tacitus is the favorite at 9 to 5. Brad, what exactly does that mean? 9 to 5. Basically... Brad, did we lose you? I'm trying. Brad. No, I'm here. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to to find. Okay, here we go. Um, basically, I'm trying to you know make it kind of the odds. Basically, nine to five um, would be. Where is that? Oh, wow. 
I did not know that. I didn't realize that, actually. Okay. The, no, I was reading the payoffs for a 9 to 5. I forgot that's $5.60 on a $2 payoff. Um, to compute your to basically the odds are given based on the money uh, in various okay. pools win, place, and show pool uh, for a particular track and then of course with the adventation of the internet and networking you have off track pools which combine in and so I think okay. what they do is if you have a total pool of 62,000 per se and you have Tacticus with $50,000 having been wagered out of that 62000 on him to win, then obviously his odds go, go down. So if he was like a one-to-nine horse, he, you would make $2.20 because everything is played off the paramutual window of a $2 bet. And what you do is you compute your $2 winning price you take the odds of your horse and multiply the first number by two and divide that second number and divide that by the second number, and then you add $2 to that, and you basically have your price. The easiest way to do it, the way I usually do it is, if it's a two-to-one horse, I take that two-to-one, I add, I times that by two, and then add $2 for a total of okay. bucks. Okay. Uh, right. But... That's how the See, that's, I mean, that's I know the math that I can do. <laughs> or I always I always go a dollar. If I put two dollars but if I put two dollar if I put one dollar, I would actually win four dollars. I mean Michael, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Mm-hmm. To calculate the exact odds on your horse, you just subtract the take from the total pool, then subtract the amount bet on your horse to give you the amount of cash to be paid out. You divide that figure by the amount bet on your horse to get the exact odds. So it's a it's a like a science that they've put together. And this is if you ever go to the track, they'll have the tote board out on the screen, and it'll have exact right. odds, which is the first. You know, you have to predict the first two horses to finish. Right. The trifecta, which is the top three, the super, which is the top four. Um, but you'll have your winning, like I said, your winning pool your, and all that. And literally, like, they scan it. What is it, Lee? I don't know how long. They, they change it every 30 seconds or so. As money comes in, they dump long, these pools. And how long? Before the race actually goes off, do they lock these odds in? Because, like, I know I they believe in football, it's like the, the morning of the starting gate. Yeah, the, they lock them in when the horses enter the starting gate. Okay. So it'll it can change up until it'll change up until. I like to see it change as they're running. Hmm. And and what they call a lot of people will look for like when I'm when I'm handicapping horse racing, they have what's called late money, uh, and that's guys that will make substantial bets at the very last minute. So let's say you have a pool of over a million dollars, and it's diversified throughout the show and the place and the wind pools. 
And all of a sudden, a guy walks up to the window with 30 seconds left to bet, and he goes, give me a million dollars to win on whatever. Um, obviously, if that horse is at 30 to 1, if you drop a million dollars on him, you're going to make that go from 30 to 1 almost down to 3 to 1. And, uh, you know, so there are ways to manipulate the odds legally. Now, obviously, it's now if you're the gamble. If you make a bet, if you make that bet at thirty to one, do you get the thirty to one odds, or do you only get no. the three to one odds? You would get you down to three to one. That. Yeah. Okay. Now, and every everybody who is betting the 31, 30 to one, thinking this horse wins, I'm gonna be in the money. Okay, it's gonna be pissed off. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, well, a quick a quick breakdown of this. Uh, there was a horse, uh, Stavrat, was the last longest odds horse to win the Belmont. I think it was Savari or Stavrat. Went off at 70 to 1. To instantly calculate that, you get 70 uh, times 2, which is 7, which is 140, plus another $2. It's $142. Um. So that's how much it is. Based, and all of your prices that you see on the board, Michael, are, are based on $2 prices. Now, if you had uh-huh. bet $200 to win on that horse, you take 142 and since it takes $102 bills to make 200 bucks, you will, literally would make $142 times 100. Same thing with $20 yeah. times 10. So with 5 bucks times 2 and a half. So all of your mutual prices are based off of $2 unless it's specified as one of these new dollar or dime exotics that they have now. Right. I cannot leave them looking much so about that. I'm going to go check the, the, <laughs> the horse was Sarava. That was the Sarava. 2002 Belmont Stakes. And War Emblem, Bob Baffert's horse was hoping to take the triple crown that year and his bid was foiled by Sarava who went off at 71 mm-hmm. odds uh, Sarava and War Emblem are both now at Old Friends War Emblem went uh, went to stud and then went to Japan for to stud apparently War Emblem didn't like girls Because he he was not a good producer, and um, he he was a very smart, very mean horse, and so he ended up coming back to the United States, and he's at Old Friends, and there's two fences in front of his paddock because uh-huh. he's mellowed, but not that much. <laughs> at hmm. at horse shows. When there's a horse who who kicks, you put a red ribbon in their tail so that people know to avoid the back end. Okay. And that that's that's war emblem. I need that too. And a red collar at the dog park means a dog bites. So I need the red a red ribbon in my hair. That means I kick and bite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now the rest of the field, it's easier math. 
Uh, War of Will is two to one, so he's the second favorite. Bourbon War is twelve to one. Master Fencer eight to one. Intrepid Heart ten to one. Sir Winston twelve to one. Everfast twelve to one. Spinoff fifteen to one. Tax fifteen to one. And Jovia is the uh, uh, thirty to one. So he's the long shot at this point. And the thing about hmm. Jovia is, is I believe that Jovia is going to be your pace setter. Probably so. I think he's going to break and set the pace, and and that's where uh, you know I have him. I don't have him as winning the race. I think he falls a little bit short. Uh, but I don't see a blistering pace being set either, though. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not really familiar. He's he's the only one I haven't really heard too much about. Uh, so I'll have to do a little bit more a little bit more research and investigation on him. Uh, before Saturday, and then the trainers this year uh, talk about them real quick. Bill Mott, who's training Tacitus, uh, Mark Cassie is War of Will and Sir Winston, Mark Hennig is Bourbon War, Koichi Sonoda is Master Fencer, who is the Japanese horse. Uh, he came over here from Japan for the Kentucky Derby, and now he's running in the Belmont Stakes. And this opens up the betting field in Japan as well because they've made an exception to allow uh, Japanese wagering on the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont Stakes races. And then Todd Pletcher is Intrepid Heart and Spinoff. Dale Romans trains ever fast. Danny Gargan tax and Greg Sacco Jovia. And I guess everybody's familiar with Mott, Cassie, Pletcher, and Romans. Uh, Danny Gargan, Greg Sacco, I think are relatively young, and Mark Henning are they they haven't been in the in the spotlight. Although they've they've all been training for some time. Well, you talked about Jovia, and I mean, he finishes a, 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 a April the sixth. He ran in the Grade Two Wood Memorial. He finished eleventh, uh, winning that race. Of course, with Tack this and Tack. Uh, they bring him back on May the twelfth uh, at Monmouth, where he finishes first in the long branch at a mile and a 16th at a time of 144 and 61 seconds. So, uh, excuse me. You know, and before that, of course, he ran at Laurel, uh, the Jimmy Wingfield at Aqueduct, and then Monmouth in the made special weight where he finished first, second, and second with a really bad trip at the Wood Memorial at Aqueduct, again, finishing 11th. To tax his tax, uh, but yeah, you know they talk about this horse having, a, you know, he can set the pace, 
but I just don't think that he's got what it takes to actually to win the race. I actually have um, I like tax in this race. Hmm. I think tax is going to to do really well in this race as far as. Uh, but but another horse that I really really look for too is is uh, Intrepid Heart by Todd. Parker. I mean it's only his third race out, but you know a lot of the money okay. is more of Will and Pontius, of course. Right, right. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of partial to War of Will. Uh, not only Derby and Preakness are, you know, because of performance. I mean, that veer off by maximum security could have been catastrophic. And, you know, Mark Cass has repeatedly said if Warville hadn't been the athlete that he is, it would have been catastrophic. And I like Tyler uh, Gaff, uh I don't want to mispronounce his name. Tyler Gaffleon, who's the jockey on War Will. Well, I think, I well, think Lisa, what I think he had an, for Tyler is that he's not guaranteed to get that fast early pace that sets up his late kick. And yeah. honestly, nine to five in the early odds is not going to give you uh, very much value. Right. Um, but but he's he's a tappet and the tappets perform well at Belmont. I mean, if you, yeah, the 2017 Belmont winner tappet, um, he should thrive at that distance. But I think this is going to depend on if he can get mm-hmm. that fast early pace that he needs to set up his run. And if mm-hmm. he doesn't get that, then he could be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, but you know, I mean, his uh, he's. Only finished out of the money once, and that was in a maiden special weight at two. Uh, his second start at two at Aqueduct, he was first. So he broke his maiden on his second try. Uh, American Pharaoh, his first race, he didn't perform well at all. But he improved after that. And then I think kind of the Kentucky Derby with all the issues and the disqualification, I don't think you can really use it to judge how a horse is going to run. Well, and, you know, I can't believe you're not on Intrepid Heart, though, uh, you know, being another son of Pat. He, yeah, it's, it's you know, an Intrepid Heart and and Tacitus, because they're both Tappet. Um, you know, it's a toss up. <laughs> and he was starting to see the payment day. Wait, pardon? I said Taffet ran third in the Peter Pan state. Intrepid Hart did. Oh, Intrepid Hart, okay, yeah. Uh let's see, I'm looking at his record on Horse Racing Nation. Uh, which are these are excellent resources. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't have very many starts. First and third. Second to Sir Winston. 
in the Peter Pan. So yeah, he's he's kind of an unknown quantity. War of Will is is the horse that I was on War of Will and Country House in the Kentucky Derby. Um, Country House, because I had watched him perform at the Arkansas Derby uh, under pretty much the same virtual conditions that we got at the Arkansas Derby that we ended up with at the Kentucky Derby, a sloppy track. Now, obviously, Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have Country House winning, but he was in the the exotics pools that I was telling uh, folks to play. Um, War of Will, however, was that horse that I had pretty much thought in my head would, would pull what he did at the Preakness. And I know that me and you disagree, but I really do think that had War of Will not had to change his footing up because of Maximum Security's mistakes, I think he pretty much was poised because I've watched the Kentucky and the Preakness, and they both pretty much sat four wheels where he was at in both races. Um, my my observation of Kentucky the Kentucky Derby was that War of Will would have finished in a better position had the the veer not happened. But my position is always he would have finished just out of the money. He would have probably been fourth or fifth. He was caught up. When you look at that Kentucky Derby, they were just, as an ex-boyfriend of mine from Germany used to say, they were just chock-a-blocked. And they were so close together and so tight that um, I, I just don't think he would have been able to get out of that. In the Preakness, they were relatively close together, but they were not as tight as they were in the Derby. And I also think Tyler Gasleon made the move a little bit earlier to take the lead in the Preakness than he, he made the attempt to move. And I think he may have been trying to make a move, in the Derby when maximum security veered. But I just, I don't see from the way they were positioned in the Derby that they would have been able to, that he would have been able to get ahead and finish first. He might have finished fourth or fifth, maybe third, but I just don't see it because of the tight, the tight quarters he was in. Because who was the other one, um, Bodie Express, and who was the other one that Gary, not Gary Stevens, John Court, who lodged the other complaint? I can't remember. Uh, That horse, he and War of Will were practically bumping shoulders. They were that they were so close together. Um, now, I mean, like I, I love him. I mean, I love War Will. He's a war front. Um, you know, he's northern dancer on both sides. Impeccable, impeccable breeding. Uh, and he's, you know, he's a he's one of those cool, quirky horses. 
Mark Cassie uh, today. He was he was working Warfront a War of Will because he wasn't going to work him. He was going to just take it easy with him. And then today, War of Will was jumping out of his skin, trying you know to jump on everybody this morning. So they decided to go ahead and and let him have a turnaround Belmont's uh, track. A siren went off because of loose horses. And Mark Cassie had a heart attack, but War of Will handled it like a champ. Of course, they had a loose horse in the in the Preakness and didn't bother him any. So, um, and he's a very handsome, he's a handsome colt. Very good looking. Uh so, but yeah, I I think he would have done better in the derbies than he did, but I don't, I just don't see how he could have won in that tight of quarters. Unless he could have gotten literally on the rail and gotten past maximum security altogether. All now, and if he'd been able to get past maximum security and opened up, uh, yeah, he could have won. Right. I mean, you've got in, – because in this race, you've got, you know, if you want to go by scenarios for pace setters, you have Jovia, who's the pretty much the only horse in this race that was bred for pure speed. Uh, and then if you want to go to your pressers and your stalkers, you've got Intrepid Heart, Spinoff, Texas, Tax, and War of Will. And if you want to go to your closers, Bourbon War, Everfast, Master Fencers, the Japanese horse, and Sir Winston. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at this and you just, you take it, War Will and Tacitus, obviously being the pressers and the stalkers in this, you know, the two big ones, you know, if the pace is good and it's not like super fast, but it's decent, Tacitus could win this race. But, uh, it's going to take the right pace for him. War of Will is is where I'm where I'm kind of torn on because you know fourth early on in the Preakness before he made his move, um, I just don't think he's as likely as someone to lead the group chasing Joe, but he's going to be a part of it. Yeah, because I think he does like to run at or on the pace. He's not one. Yeah, he's I mean, not he's, one that will run. Will you know? Will just lope along at the back and then turn it on and smoke everybody. Uh, because in all the races I've seen, you know that that has never been his style. Um, I think and I it was, think uh, you're going to see Constance more will. They run about the same. So uh, right, we're looking at if these if these two horses get the pace that they need, then we're definitely going to see who the alpha is here. But I think yeah. if you go War of Will Tacticus and they set the pace the way, or the pace is set up for them, I believe, honestly, that with tactical speed and, and talented enough to adapt, that Tacticus can win this race. However, I'm still going to go with Intrepid Heart to win the race. And that's, you know, that's what I like in that. Um, you know, he stumbled out of the gate early in his last race and was forced to chase more than he used to. 
But, you know, in his short career, he was on or near the pace, and he could be a good bet. Mm-hmm. I and am so, secretly hoping that he will win because then he will join 12 other horses who have not won the Kentucky Derby but gone on to take both the Preakness and Belmont Stakes. And that's, you know, it's another thing I like about horse racing. They love the statistics. Every every race, how many times the trainer's been, how many times the jockey's won, how many times, you know, the horse or, or the horse's sire or horse's dam. Um, they love this, and they love the statistics. So I would love to see that for War of Will. And I think that would settle any doubt as to who the best three-year-old of 2019 was. But, you know, Lisa, the interesting thing, too, though, if we're going closing speed, did you know that Master Fincher actually – his final quarter mile time in the Kentucky Derby was 24 and point sixty seconds. Tacticus 25.4, World Will 25.8, Tax 27.26, and Spinoff 27.31. So, I mean, that horse has some good speed as a closer, yeah. but will Master Fencher be close enough and not burn himself out trying to keep up? And that is always, and that's the reason, that's one of the things with Belmont. That track is so big, and the race is so long, that predicting it is almost impossible. Because you just never know. And it's usually something, especially the years where we've seen the disappointment of a of a failed bid for the Triple Crown, uh, nine times out of ten, I think it it was the, the distance. Uh, because, as I said, I, I still recall California Chrome. Victor Espinosa was looking under his arm and didn't see another horse overtaking him on the other side. And Tonalist ended up ending the bid for the Triple Crown. And I think nine times out of ten, it's it's going to be human jockey error rather than um, horse. And you know, you know what jockey doesn't... Lisa, is that intrepid heart, we're talking about, you know, his lineage. He was sired by Taffet um, his sire, sire Taffet has sired three of the past five stake winners, Tonalist, Creator, Taffet. His dam, Flaming Heart, was sired by Touch Gold, winner of the 97 stake. And another one of the Flaming Heart's progenies, Commissioner, finished second in the belt stake in 2014. So, you know, Fletcher's told reporters that since the day that they purchased the he the thoughts were in our minds that this horse is really bred for the Belmont State. So, it, and he's got John Velasquez on in the mouth, uh, trained for Todd uh, Fletcher. 
it's going to be interesting. Of course, Mark Cassie, Cassie R. Farms, you know, I believe, doesn't he have two horses in this race? Correct. He's War of Will and um, Sir Winston. And he is, and actually War of Will is, is seeking to become the first horse to finish fourth or worse in the Kentucky Derby and going to win the Preakness in Belmont. Since point given in 01 and first non-derby winner to win both races since the Fleet Alex in 05. That's what you were talking about Correct. earlier with the not winning the Kentucky Derby. Of course, you got to go with, you know, you can't take away from Bill Mott and Jose Ortiz on board uh, Tacticus again. No, no. And it, like I said, it'll be interesting to see if this is a year where we at least have uh a definitive answer on the best three-year-old. Um, and, you know, Bill I, you know, I remember, what was it, 2016, we had um, uh, Nyquist, Exaggerator, and then Creator on Kentucky Derby, Preakness, and Belmont. And Bill Mott's won the Belmont before in 2010 with Drosselmeyer. So, I mean, he's still mm-hmm. in the winner's circle. Um, right. Again, though, like I like if I had to place money on it, and, and I won't. Um, <laughs> but I look, and, and in all seriousness, I look for Intrepid Heart to to finish first, and then I literally and seriously think that you're going to get uh, a horse like Tacticus to War of Will in second or third. Uh, you know, so I would literally be looking at an eight, nine, ten, the the three outside positions to finish one, two, and three, uh, with War of Will and Tacticus somewhere in there for second or third. I just think that Intrepid Heart, uh, you know, obviously he's coming in with some rest in this one. So I mean, he mm-hmm. to me, I like Intrepid Heart if we were going to close it tonight. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to tell you what, Brad. I'm going to give my my bosses, my my late boss's sons, because uh, my former boss, my late boss was a horse breeder at one time and was very, loved going to the races, go, going to OTB uh, on Saturday and especially during Kentucky Derby, Preakness and Belmont. So I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to give the son $20.00. And I'm going to have him do the trifecta, eight, nine, and ten. And on Saturday night, I'm either going to love you to death or just love you a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I just because your your way is more scientific than mine. Hold on, so does that mean Brad gets a cut if you win, Lisa? No. No, no, no. My winnings are gonna go my winnings are gonna go into bills. <laughs> Cause I got bills. So and next year, just so everyone knows and, and if you know me on Facebook and you didn't enjoy yourself listening to this show next year, 
2020 uh, American Pharaoh's first crop will be uh, three-year-olds, and some of them will be racing in the Philly and Colt races. Uh, so we're going to hear, I'm going to be talking about racing a lot next year. Fair warning, 2020 is going to be an exciting year to see which ones have risen to the top and, and how he's doing as a freshman sire. Well, Michael, here's your opportunity. I've got the eight horse to win it. Uh Um, I like the nine and the ten to finish second and third. If it was me, I would probably box the nine and the ten on the backside of the eight. But because I don't know, I would would think that, that War of Will would come in second and Tacticus third. I think the Tacticus sets great. But, again, and this could be contingent. Like, this is all contingent on the pace. If the pace opens up and it's and it's, it's a moderate to, to decent pace, then Tacticus could very mm-hmm. well win the race. But uh, I just don't think the race sets up for, for Tacticus. And I like, like I said, so, Michael, uh, your opportunity here to, to, to Google the field and and go ahead and pick a winner, and then I can gloat about it come like next uh, next Tuesday night. <laughs> Saturday evening. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm sitting here looking at the names of the horses because that's how I roll. Uh, we're gonna go with Master Fencer just because that's a pretty badass name. I'm wanting, wondering how he came up, how the owner came up with that. So we're just gonna call, go ahead and go with Master Fencer. Oh, I get no reaction because I'm the one guy in the world that uses names. Is that how? Oh it no, is? no, no, no! <laughs> I was giving Brad a chance. Oh, oh. Master, Brad, I mean, Master Fisher's a good closer. The problem is, is that I don't think he's force enough to close a mile and a half race because I because he he's literally going to have to run deep. Just like the movie The Perfect Storm, he's going to have to carry the perfect race, in my opinion. Well, I mean. Yeah. I, I, I mean, long shots have won before, it. <laughs> Although closers sometimes, the longer the race, the, the more it benefits the closer. Well, Lisa, I have officially posted and tagged you on Facebook with my prediction. So okay, cool. That was that was at ten twenty-two p.m. on June fourth. So I'm in, and I may have got the nine and the ten backwards as far as names go. But you know, War of Will is nine, and Tacitus is ten. I then I got it right. Uh, Michael yeah. can attest that that I did call Country House and War of Will. In the Kentucky Derby, and I remember, I, I remember you. Uh, you talked, uh-huh. you talked to us. It's on. I think it's on tape. 
<laughs> on uh yeah, I remember that. And then I'm going with War of Will. Number nine. Um he's just he's my favorite. Good looking horse. He's got the breeding. Uh he's got the 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 heart and the mind to do it. So I'm saying War of Will takes the Belmont at 10:24 on June 4th, 2019. Okay. I guess I should. I guess I should have. Hold on. Let me change something. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm. I'm just a tag. That's it. So now that you and Michael have both been tagged. And this will be deleted when Intrepid Heart does the win. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and in all honesty, not backpedaling, but if Intrepid Heart is not to win that race, I still think that that you see the 8, 9, and the 10 in, in the top of the money board at the end of the race. Um, It'll be interesting to see, like I said, the pace of the race. I could, I'll probably be able to accurately predict the winner around the second call of the race. Um, when I see the times and see how they've set up, then it'll, it'll definitely, you know. And that's the one disadvantage you have when you're handicapping horses is that you can't tell what type of race they're going to run until they run it. But you can go by the past performances and all of that. Um, to make an educated, but, yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, I've had all right, well, I've selected everything, or I've hit the second place winner every single time. Oh, well, that's amazing. I've literally gone to a 14-race card and accurately predicted second and third, which I had them bet for first and second. Um, yeah, I, I, I bet on, um, I periodically would bet on the Derby and the Preakness and like the, the California Chrome. I didn't bet on, on him in the Derby. I did okay in the Preakness and then I didn't do well in the Belmont. And then American Pharaoh was very happy Except that I bet on Dortmund in the Kentucky Derby. Because I wanted Dortmund to win the Kentucky Derby. Because I wanted him to follow his papa. (laughs) And do one better. So, um, but once once a horse wins the Derby, I, I love him for life. No matter what happens. And just a little bit of breaking news. UCLA has beaten Oklahoma in the women's college world series. Is that really breaking news? I thought that was pretty much assumed. Well, whatever. (laughs) All right, gentlemen. Well, before uh, Blog Talk Radio Uh, decides to cut our chat... This has been a joy. We do. I, I am serious. We're doing this next year in May and June 
prior to the Derby well, Preakness I will, in Belmont. Lisa, I will say that you sent me your outline, and I absolutely murdered your outline. I'm sorry for that. No, that's okay. The outline is just suggestions of topics that we can talk about. But, you know, as you've seen, we're going to roll with it. It's not set in stone. Um, we we rolled with it. I think it was it was interesting, informative, and that leaves topics we can talk about next year. Well, before I let you go, I guess I can go ahead and 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 I want to uh, get your opinion on something. Obviously, this is a special edition of a show that you that you host along with uh, Michael Carnahan called Clear and Convincing. And as everybody knows. Um, that that I used to host a show called Behind the Curtain, which was kind of a a poor man's um, dang it, coast to coast AM. I almost lost it. <laughs> um, wow! But I'm sorry, Brad. And, I know, but me and well, the fact that I'm sitting here, you know, busting off all this information about odds and all this, I I think I'm going to call that problem gambling hotline. Because uh, I, I think I know too much about how this works, um, but I think me and Michael are actually going to start kind of a counteractive show to what Clear and Convincing is, where we take court cases that have. Um, Michael, you explained it better to me. <laughs> Basically, Lisa, what we're going to do is. We're going to present on that show the counterpoint to what your show would be. So basically, uh, we're not going to, you know, obviously if we take, you know, what next week, and obviously we're going to get into this in a minute, but next week we're going to talk about a uh, case. Obviously, we're not going to directly correlate our shows based upon yours, but, you know, okay. for example, Stephen Avery, Brad is going to come and do a show based upon his uh, belief that Stephen Avery was uh, railroaded. You know, just okay. once again, good good uh, to get both sides out there as well. But also, you know, something that he feels passionate about as well. So it's one of those things, you know, hey, it always makes for good uh, radio. Sure. It's going to be one of those shows, Lisa, where you're sitting there and you're, you're, you've got an open line of credit at Best Buy because you're replacing laptops and computers because you're throwing shit at it going, did he just say that? Did he just say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm 54 years old. My, when, when that is my, my, my predicted reaction... I turn it off. <laughs> Sorry, but I've learned. <laughs> I do what I do on clear and convincing because there a lot of times there's information that you don't hear in Making a Murderer or Paradise Lost or 48 Hours or Dateline or some of these other shows, especially when they're coverage is biased toward the defense case or the defense claim. 
Right. And that's right. why I do and, what I do. And, yeah, you know, and... and, and, and that's why I think it's good for, especially on your show too, because, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't see a lot of uh, a lot of people taking your stance either. That's why I think you know we do have such a market for both uh, for both podcasts, right? And that you right. know somebody can listen to your podcast, you know who who you know tends to fall on your side, and then. Somebody can also listen to, you know, let's say we do the same case on Brad's podcast six months down the line. They can listen to that side as well. And then, you know, we can also encourage people. It's almost like Fox News pretends to be, fair and balanced. So. Michael, you're cutting on tough ground there. <laughs> hey, well, I didn't know. Oh, oh, John, of- how's it going? <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. Well, I, I could say the same about MSNBC, but you know. True. True. What What aggravates me is that having a bias is there's nothing wrong with it. It's actually pretty natural. But it's pretending that you're being objective and telling people that you're being objective when you are obviously not. That's what bothers me. Oh, no. And, and Brad, if, you can correct if me if I'm wrong. Making a murderer had said, we believe Stephen Avery is absolutely innocent. He never did anything wrong. He never hurt anybody. He never raped anybody. He never killed anybody. And this is why we believe that. I would have, you know, not watched it at all. But they're like, "Oh, we're journalists and we're we're objective and this is this is the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth." And then shows one of the attorneys gloating because there's a hole in a blood sample vial. How do you think the blood gets in the vial in the first place? Brad? I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Did, did you think that was a bombshell? The hole in the vial? And do you know why when he called LabCorp, do you know why they said they didn't do that? Because they don't stick a needle in the vial to withdraw blood. They unstop it and take blood out. See, what the, bomb, the only bombshell on that to me was that, that they had talked about that that was the very first one that they ever had a hole in. I haven't watched it in a long time, mm. so it's. I would have to actually and that's, go back. See, and that's the thing. That is absolutely untrue because the blood, a needle is put through the stopper. Have you ever had blood drawn? Mm, yes, it's been a while, but yes. And the needle goes through the stopper. The The needle goes into your arm. There's another needle. The, the vial is put on the needle. 
and then they open the tourniquet and fill the vial. They don't they don't stick open a vein and hold your arm over an open vial and then stop it. Stopper it. They've never taken blood that way. But for Jerry Buting, he gives the impression that that's how they take blood. Oh, my God. They, you know, they stick an open vial on your arm and fill it up, and then they stick the stopper in. But no, to get the blood in there. And, and the reason you never hear anything more about it, and you don't hear about it in Making a Mother or Two, is because the nurse who drew the blood gave an affidavit and was going to testify that she's the one who put the hole in the vial or in the stopper when she drew the blood. Right. Well, Lisa, and we could go that's what we, I object we, we, to we, with right. Paradise Lost and Making a Murderer is things are presented either incompletely or out of context to be nefarious or appear exculpatory when they're not. Well, one of the show topics that we're going to cover are what I'm going to call piss me off me and, and Facebook posts because this is pissing me off. And that is that I am staring at a no-bake peanut butter cheesecake, and I don't have one in front of me. That makes me mad. Oh, I know. Those recipes. (laughs) And I never have any of that shit in my pantry. (laughs) Michael, schedule this the first show. It's called Food Memes and How They they Are the Death of American Society Right Now, because I'm going to go out and kill somebody. There you go. There you go. We're all we're friends with, with Brandy and Cody. Go look at that real quick and tell me your reaction live on the air. Stop. Hold up, hold mm. up. Is it on is it on Brandy or Cody? Brandy posted it to Cody's page. No. Okay. Give me a second. It's crazyforcrust.com. I'm going to go get a sponsorship from them right now. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, Lisa, I'm sending this to you just to be mean. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so, Lisa, so if you win on Intrepid Heart at the Belmont, you can take some of that money and go buy this. Okay. <laughs> Holy Did you get right. it? It's in your messenger. Oh, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I did not need to see that. Tonight. <laughs> All right. <laughs> God, y'all like having little brothers. That's one of those All things. Right. If I got to see it, you got to see it. <laughs> and the thing about it is there's a website called Food Coma or Food Porn. I can't remember which one it is. Oh my gosh. Right. Google that. You the wrong thing pop up. 
Yeah, no. No, no. I like Google, but I know it's limitations. All right. Well, I think we better wrap this one up before Blog Talk does it for us. Sounds good. All right. And unfortunately, we didn't play our break song. I had a really great song for the break, but we were just rolling, so oh well. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien, Michael Carnahan, and tonight, Brad Hicks. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter. Thank you again to Brad Hicks for joining us tonight and for the amazing logo he created when we launched the podcast in February 2018. Join us on Monday, June 10th, 2019 at 8 p.m. Central for Episode 14, State of Texas versus Sean Berry, Lawrence Brewer, and John William King, all of whom were convicted of the June 7th, 1998, dragging death of James Byrd Jr. in Jasper, Texas. After their convictions for capital murder, Berry was sentenced to life in prison, and Brewer and King were sentenced to death. Brewer was executed in 2011. Prior to his execution in April 2019, King launched a flurry of appeals, some of which included claims of actual innocence. We'll talk about the death of James Byrd Jr., the trials, direct appeals, and post-conviction claims, including the allegations made by King's advocates in an attempt to delay or stop his execution. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.